Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. This week, we are going to hit on a topic that I know Fel has been dying to talk about on this podcast, which is New Age spirituality, discussing what New Age is, how it came about, some of the possible issues that we have with this new religious movement. But before we go ahead and get into that, I'm going to pass it over to Hanny, who has our What Happened on This Day. Currently, it is May 16th, 2021. So Hanny, go ahead and take it away. Okay, so on May 16th, 1988, uh, we discovered some of the dangers of smoking. And this was when the US Surgeon General C. Everett Koop declared nicotine in tobacco to be addictive in ways similar to heroin and cocaine. His report outlined the pharmacologic and behavioural processes that determine tobacco addiction, and how they're similar to those associated with other addictive substances, saying it lights up the brain, which reference regions of the brain that are stimulated after tobacco use. This was the beginning of an understanding that cigarettes can be addictive. So let's just dive right into it. Let's talk about New Age spirituality. So the first question is, can New Age be defined? And this is interesting because I was looking into this, trying to figure out like what what New Age is, like if I were to give a definition for it. And most of the articles that I came across said that it's pretty much impossible to define because it's just kind of this conglomeration of a lot of different um, philosophies and then also traditions. Um, what did you guys find? Did you find any like strict definition? I found several. I'm just going to read them out and see what you think about them. One one prominent scholar in the 1990s was uh, Walter Hanegraaff. I apologize to all Germans who just heard me pronounce that word. But he understands New Age to be a form of secularized esotericism. It's a modern manifestation of occult and esoteric ideas and beliefs, originally constructed in 18th century and 19th century texts by mesmerists, theosophists, and harmonial religionists. So this mentions theosophy, and we're going to get to that later. It's quite a prominent influence on the New Age. Other definitions, for example, a scholar called York, again in the 1990s, summarised it as a blend of pagan religions, Eastern philosophies, and occult and psychic phenomena. So again, this kind of alludes to an influence of the occult, but we've also got a lot of Asian and Eastern philosophies influencing it. And finally, Van Hove, again in the 1990s, defined it as an eclectic and inspirational mix of Eastern religions, the Western esoteric tradition, and psychology sometimes more intuitive than others. So I was curious what you thought about that, those definitions and kind of where you think it fits in. I think it's a lot more complicated than this, but that gives us an idea of how eclectic it is. Yeah, I mean, if we're ready, I can launch right into the history. <laughs> so I went a little nuts on the history here, but it, it, it is truly fascinating. So New Age is interesting because it is both hard to define, but also, in my opinion, has a pretty identifiable framework to it. A lot of times people will say new age when they just mean new so i want to put that out there that like just because it's a new religious movement does not make it new age i am talking about capital n capital a new age new age was a specific movement from that like originated in the 1970s came about during the so-called age of aquarius which i'll get into i've seen people try to say that like crowley or thalema is new age but it is not. <laughs> it's a new religious movement, and like Wicca is a new religious movement, but I would argue that those two things are not new age. 
Um, so I think where some of the confusion comes in is that a lot of the new religious movements of the 19th and 20th centuries stemmed from a groundwork that was laid during the Victorian period. So several really important things happened here. First, we had the Industrial Revolution, uh, then we had the advent of psychology, then we had the spiritualist movement, and finally early anthropology and some major groundbreaking early archaeological digs and explorations in places like Greece and Egypt. Now, initially, it's hard to see how these things are related or laid a framework that gave birth to really an explosion of religious movements, but I will get into that. Yeah. So, I mean, before we go any farther, let's maybe talk about why it's called the New Age, capital N, capital A, New Age. There's several theories for this, and Hanny, this is what you put in there. Yeah. So, you mentioned the Age of Aquarius. I am not really well versed in astrology so i'm not i'm not going to explain it in detail but um it's an idea where we enter a new astro- astrological age and we move out of pisces and we move into aquarius and that shifts our spiritual perspective so it's a new spirituality for a new age but there's also this idea um and fell's going to touch on the political influences on this where we have this like this death of god the death of the current civilization and the movement into the new age so it's a new spirituality for a new era i guess a quote i found which explains it quite well a new coming world order to be inherited by the chosen few who survived the cleansing of the planet triggered by social and economic collapse and um, so that might be post-war or that might, might be post-nuclear war kind of doomsday cultish in, in some ways but they, yeah this is why it's, it's new age because we're we're shifting as a society our cultural perspective To lay the groundwork for why we see such an explosion, like I said, of new religious movements out of the Victorian period, there was a lot of things going on. So the Industrial Revolution, I always argue, is where a lot of our problems and also a lot of our presumptions about this is how society, the job market, careers work. Heck, that's why we have daylight savings time is because of the Industrial Revolution. So the Industrial Revolution dramatically and irrevocably changed our world for better and for worse. And it also fast-tracked a lot of not only things, it it fast-tracked so many different industries, including certain scientific developments, just because it was able to mass produce things in a in a way where everything was kind of the same. At the time, there was actually a strong reaction to this. So you saw two main camps of people embracing technology and science as a means to human progress, which led to things like race science and other highly problematic and unethical studies and beliefs, many of which have persisted today. However, on the other hand, you also saw an embracing of pastoralism, naturalism, and an extreme rejection of all things technological and scientific. So both of these things kind of collided in early archaeology and anthropology, where you had those who were obsessed with discovery, and then you also had those who were obsessed with discovery as a means to go back to simpler times. There was almost like a race to uncover and unveil, which often was to the detriment of the things that they were finding and the areas they were finding them in. Then you had those where you get like Margaret Murray and a lot of her contemporaries were the ones who were more in the get back to ancient ways camp. It's impossible to talk about early archaeology and anthropology without talking about colonialism and thievery. In fact, it's kind of impossible to separate colonialism from the history of archaeology and anthropology. Many of the time we see white upper class men going into what was at the time British or French colonies, stealing sacred objects, harming people, desecrating the land, and just generally bringing a whirlwind of destruction with them. And on their return to the homelands, uh, they would take ideas and philosophies from the places that they were going. So that's where some of the, the that influences were coming from as well, was this sort of rediscovering of history and also 
discovering lands that were, you know, already inhabited. Yeah, on on the topic of colonism, I do also want to like iterate that this is a problem in America too. Like we have also done right. this with so many indigenous people, not only taken their land and forced them through something as you know the awful like trail of tears. We also have taken a lot of their cultural traditions. I mean, the classic example in the occult space, right, is this idea of smudging, but also things like dream catchers and there's plenty of other, you know, like perfect examples of where indigenous cultures have been appropriated from and stolen from and colonized. So even though the fellow is speaking, I think more in, in terms of European with the French and all of that, it's happened equally as much in America. We can't and shouldn't discount that. Yeah, absolutely. And see, Henny, you have, are these your notes here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so with the kind of globalization, I think that's a really, really good point about this kind of borrowing from, or sometimes stealing from, from other cultures. Um, I think the key influences we see on the new age tend to be from Eastern philosophies. So that might be from Chinese religion, this idea of chai. It might often be from like a Vedic religion. So Hinduism and Buddhism, you see lots of ideas of meditation coming from there, of chakras. And they, yeah, they tend to be borrowed, but they tend to be borrowed in a very sort of superficial way or kind of, I think also with the Industrial Revolution, we also saw the birth of kind of neoliberalism later on. And this meant that we had a kind of more intense focus on the self. So a lot of new age has to do with a move away from kind of religious institutions and more to do with a, a personal spirituality, also a commodification of these kind of ideas. And these all kind of came hand in hand with industrialization. So after that, we had uh, the third thing I mentioned was the birth of psychology. Now, we already talked a bit about the history of psychology in our shadow work episode, but it's important to note that Sigmund Freud had a pretty massive influence on the occult. And a lot of early psychologists oscillated between proving and disproving certain occult phenomena. And at the time, psychology was almost straddling both science and spirituality. And in many cases, it ended up being kind of co-opted by either side to prove certain biases. And then a little later, uh, we already talked about Carl Jung, but he specifically like comes up a lot with the New Age. Psychology was had this very weird, tenuous relationship with spirituality at the time. But one of the important things, probably one of the most important things that happened at the time with psychology was the, it wasn't really the creation because it had existed before, but people getting more into things like hypnotism and that hypnosis was like really heralded as this like treatment and people would use it for like things like trance work. So hypnosis played a huge part in, in that. I kind of touched on the spiritualist movement, so I'm going to get into them a little bit. So a lot of our current understandings of mediums, psychics, and even in some cases spirits, a lot of it stems from the spiritualist movement, which was a movement during the Victorian era. I believe like the 1840s. I mean, it persisted into the 20th century, but it was really around then. That's They also did a lot of like seances, automatic writing, and attempt to communicate with the dead. However, it is important to note that most prominent spiritualists, while some certainly did promote and believe in these ideas, many of them were well-documented charlatans and cons and would actually abuse scientific discoveries to sort of, pr not prove, but trick people into believing that, you know, there were spirits. There was like all of these new things that they were discovering with mirrors that could allow trick of the mind to happen. And in fact, in the US, there are actually are still some laws regarding selling spiritual services as a result of the spiritualists and how devastating the impact of their con artistry was. So that pretty much all of those things I just outlined rapid fire there are really laid the groundwork for 
just what would become like a whirlwind of religious like rethinking and new theories and rediscovering old theories it's really sort of like the birthplace of a lot i would argue a lot of modern occultism comes from the victorian era and all of the things that were going on in the 19th century however now how do we get from that into the new age so like a lot of new religious movements like i said stem from that basic framework however the new age movement uh, was influenced by two other very unfortunate 19th century movements that had to happen in order for new age to even become a thing so these movements were new thought and theosophy so new thought the origins can be best described as the intersection of metaphysics transcendentalism and american christianity so already a little weird <laughs> So to give you an idea, the founder of Christian science here in New England, she cited Phineas Quimby, who was one of the biggest influences on New Thought, as her inspiration. Christian science, for those of you who don't know, is, is very much this idea of healing through God and don't go to doctors. That's where a lot of Christian science comes from. Please go to your doctor. Don't yeah, please see your doctor. But low God, go to your doctor. So here's a quote from Brief History of New Thought. Ideal spirituality transcends the physical and is realized only through individual intuition instead of through religion. The idea of transcending sound familiar. <laughs> so New Thought posited and still does, they still, the organization of New Thought still exists, that disease originates in the mind and that through God's wisdom, it can be overcome. And here are tenets of New Thought from the New Thought movement today. Infinite intelligence, or God is omnipotent and omnipresent. Spirit is the ultimate reality. True human selfhood is divine. Divinely attuned thought is a positive force for good. All disease is mental in origin. That one I struggle with a lot. Like that, yeah. That's a sticking point for me. And then right thinking has a healing effect. So already you could probably hear some echoes of ideas that you've heard touted both by like Christian fundamentalists and also the new age. And there's a, a fun little parallel between the two of them that we'll get into. I was really interested that in the 1960s, um, there was this center called Findhorn, which um, was kind mm -hmm. of very formative for the basis of um, development of new age beliefs. And it was a lot of evangelical Christians, which really surprised me. So I just thought it was interesting that you mentioned this kind of cross fertilization between the two. We often think of new age as kind of a product of secularization, and it kind of is, but uh, paradoxically, there is also a lot of evangelical Christian thought in it, which we'll kind of get into a little bit. I think also you're going to mention theosophy, I think, but we should point out that some of the ideas kind of come from Gnosticism in a very, very abstract way. So in Gnosticism, we have this idea um, and I'm probably bastardizing it, but we have this kind of divine spark in everybody. And so you want to kind of reunite your spark of divinity in the self with that of the Godhead. And so this thing that you mentioned with true human selfhood is divine, this heavily influenced the new age. And that probably came through theosophy, but it's been watered down and reappropriated in such ways that I don't think we can really truly call it a Gnostic school. It's just a, a weird kind of mutated influence. Like what's one of the interesting things about New Age is like you can argue like everything is an influence because a lot of it is taking from other thing, like other paradigms that took from other paradigms that took from other paradigms. <laughs> just sort of this never ending cycle. This is like a very, I could honestly do an entire podcast tracing the history, like an, a whole podcast <laughs> tracing the history of New Age. So like not everything in here is going to be as nuanced, but this is just like an overview of the history. So theosophy, 
Theosophy is a religion based on the teachings and writings primarily of Helena Blavatsky. There were several other big theosophists, but she kind of became the figurehead of theosophy. Theosophy places a heavy emphasis on mysticism, transcending consciousness, and that reality is constituted of mind and spirit. Theosophy is also where we see Akashic Records. If you've read any New Age book, you'll probably come across the phrase Akashic Records. Do you want to maybe mention what those are to people who don't know? So the the New Age understanding of Akashic Records is basically like a weird big mind library or a spirit library that has like a soul's record. And that like when you die, your soul goes up into the Akashic Records and writes down the things that it learned and that you can like access them. There's about if you Google Akashic Records meditation, you'll find like a bajillion YouTube videos back when I was super new age, which is that's something I will, I will talk about my new age story. I tried them and they're like really weird. <laughs> but yeah, Akashic Records are like huge in, in new age. It's interesting. Um, I was thinking about this earlier when I was reading through our outline and Young had this idea of like the universal mind, mm-hmm. right? And do you think the Akashic Records maybe kind of fit into that like pretty well, right? Because if it's this library that everybody can download, you could consider it to be essentially the equivalent of this universal mind that supposedly everybody also has access to, even though we talked about how that's not necessarily the case. And you can go learn about that back in our shadow work episode. But do you think there's some correlation between those two? Possibly. Okay. I have just done a cursory search here. It pretty much looks like Akashic Records just comes from Helena, Helena Blavatsky. Apparently Akasha in Ayurvedic medicine is a stimulant of the ear. <laughs> so, there you um, go. I, I can kind of see maybe it's it's a term that's been taken from Ayurvedic medicine, which yeah. doesn't really pertain to its actual meaning. So I believe Hel- Helena Blavatsky did not use the term Akashic, but she introduced the word Akasha into theosophy. But speaking of Helena... <laughs> Theosophy is also notorious for Blavatsky's pretty racist and anti-Semitic views. A bit of a trigger warning for discussion on Nazism, because you cannot talk about Theosophy and Blavatsky without talking about how it eventually influenced Nazism. Helena Blavatsky coined the idea of root races and embraced the term Aryan. So root races is this idea that each race is fundamentally different spiritually, and she placed the so-called Aryan race at the top as sort of the savior of humanity. Sounds unfortunately familiar. Occultism with a Side Assault recently did an episode that discusses the influence of Blavatsky and how it sort of became this whole thing about Atlantis and ascending and just sort of how that all got warped into the Nazi occultists and just a whole mess. So like they did a whole episode on that more in depth. Blavatsky believed that eventually humanity would shed its bodies and ascend into a type of utopia, but until then she posited that the Aryan race was superior. Now, an important point of note is that Blavatsky did not use Aryan in the same way that the Nazis did. However, she did hold racist and anti-Semitic views, uh, and her ideas had a direct influence on later Nazi occultists. I believe it was called Anthosophy, but it was like a direct, like they cited her work on root races as this i yeah it it's it's a whole mess so theosophy is very very yikes and a lot of people have pointed out too that theosophy appropriated many eastern philosophies and some people refer to it as eastern mystical fetishization how on earth should we get from new thought and its weird christian science 
and Theosophy of the 19th Century to the 1970s, Age of Aquarius, Communes. So the short answer is we're not entirely sure. A lot of like things just sort of, that's kind of how history is. You see these influences, but it's not always clear how it just one thing became um, the prominent idea. But the long answer is the uh, proliferation of transpersonal and humanistic psychology. So if you've ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and self-actualization, that is transpersonal psychology. They emphasize creativity, self-love, self-actualization, transcending the ego, and spiritual growth. So already those ideas can sound familiar. Then you had the human potential movement, which is directly related to Maslow, and humanistic psychology, which emphasized exploring the use of psychedelics and other forms of inducing altered states of consciousness consciousness for spiritual growth and healing. This is where also where we see the introduction of Reiki, acupuncture, homeopathy, yoga, crystal healing, and chiropractic into the spiritual communities of the 1960s and 1970s. At the time, the early 1960s, we saw some groups in Britain strongly influenced by New Thought and Theosophy declaring a new age was coming. I believe they even called themselves the Light Movement. Sound very familiar. There also began to be some early environmentalism and environmental anxieties and a massive rebellion against the mainstream and perceived repression of the 1950s. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like a lot of this was sort of reactionary. It was um, this idea that this crisis was coming. We had a kind of post-war society and uh, there was this need for like a new spirituality that focused on the self to address this, quote, new age. And so this was borrowing, as you say, from all these different Uh, parts of the world, especially Eastern philosophies, but it wasn't necessarily grounding them in a lot of theory. So a lot of it was kind of you know, transcendental meditation came was popularized with the Beatles. But so you saw people getting into meditation, but it was in a kind of very, I guess, whitewashed way. It wasn't necessarily um, in a way that understood the roots of those phenomena. And so they aggregated themselves into this uh, new eclectic tradition. Yeah, the Beatles had a, a, a massive influence on them. So like I even mentioned later, we see people taking pilgrimages to places specifically like India and Tibet and bringing back home whitewashed ideas of Hindu and Buddhist philosophies. And also in the 60s and 70s, we had a lot of sociopolitical things going on. Like there was a second wave of feminism around that time period. Uh, This is also when we see, so I mentioned the book Drawing Down the Moon before, but her book centers a lot around the climate that created a lot of modern witchcraft from the 60s and 70s. So there was also a lot of that going on. Uh, And then, you know, you have the Vietnam War that happened in the 70s. So that also a reaction against that was just huge. So you have a lot of counterculture things going on. And once again, like we did, like we saw in the Victorian era, we saw a lot of people you know, wanting to embrace simpler times and go back. And like, that's where you see the huge commune movement and a lot of, you know, Eastern mystical fetishization happening. And that's where we see the rise of the phrase age of Aquarius, the new age of the Aquarius, or just the new age. I haven't been able to track the exact history of the term, the age of Aquarius, but once it sort of entered into the counterculture, it just sort of became embraced by a lot of popular music artists the term New Age quickly began to expand and started embracing a wide variety of counterculture beliefs and alternative religions. And by the late 70s and early 80s, New Age had moved fully from the shadows of the cult-like communes and into cultural prominence. And it's important to note that if you're looking at the history of cults, 
a lot of them happened within the new age of the 70s. <laughs> this is uh, when we start seeing the first self-described new age books is in the early 80s. We see new age shops, courses, teachers, music. And during this time, interestingly enough, the relationship between the new age and new thought began to strengthen. So from a book, uh, Perspectives on the New Age, here's a quote from it. So the New Age movement grew in prominence in the 1980s and early 1990s. The boundaries between New Thought and New Age became increasingly blurred with an emphasis on the self as divine, illness as spiritually based, rejection of mainstream science, and belief in an apocalypse. So people turned to spirituality in times of great need and social upheaval. And we can see how, at least here in the U.S., during like how did it survive to this day? Well, you had the panic of Y2K, 9-11, the war on terror, and then the 2008 economic crisis. We can see how the New Age prevailed as an outlet and release for those who were seeking answers, especially since New Age was created by the baby boomers. And I believe it's Gen X, right? Yes. Uh, Gen X and the baby boomers, which, you know, were a lot of a lot of our parents, at least my parents were boomers. So we see this again in the rise of COVID and we see how the new age again is transforming and taking ideas and taking these concepts just as it has always done. So there you go. A very brief history of the new age. That idea of ascension is one that I keep seeing come back again and again and again. And it's from theosophy originally, as you mentioned, but I think it's very escapist, this idea that we can kind of ascend and sort of escape our current crisis. And we're just going to enter a new new age and it's going to it's going to enter a new kind of level of consciousness and then we'll all be saved kind of thing. Um, It just is an idea that doesn't seem to die. (laughs) I wanted to mention because you you said that modern witchcraft um, as reference from drawing down the moon and um, the new age, they had kind of similar influences around the same time. And so I kind of wanted to talk about the focus on the self in modern witchcraft and in the new age and whether we can think of them as kind of products of the same thing. Are Are they sides of the same coin or has there always been a focus on the self in witchcraft? What do you guys think? Oh, God, honestly, I <laughs> it's hard for me to tell because after doing a lot of research for this, it's it's hard for me to decipher influences, but just like you don't always need to like decipher influences and histories. I mean, well, maybe you do, <laughs> but it's hard for me to tell, you know, is it a chicken and egg situation or is it, you know, this has always existed. It's it's really hard to say because I'd argue in a lot of reconstruction or reconstructed religions that a lot of the emphasis is on the community and not on the self but it's it's hard for me to tell if there always has been an emphasis on the self or if that is a new thing astro do you have any thoughts on this (sighs) yeah (laughs) so you know okay this whole idea of the self and and being able to heal yourself from things you know i know i just gotta say like (laughs) if you can see the face as a face of exhaustion there is legitimacy in the idea that your mindset can alter kind of the way that you perceive something and lead to you having a better attitude about thing and that can also have effects on the way that you view and interact with the world like that is legitimate there is legitimacy to that however you cannot heal yourself simply through mind thinking alone like 
like positive thoughts are not enough to heal a physical ailment. And I think this is probably one of the biggest issues that I have with new age spirituality is this idea that first of all, ailments are diseases of the mind, which is utterly ridiculous. That's not the case. And certainly you can say that there are some things like stress, which are maybe more psychological in nature that do have an impact on you physically. That's true. But that's also not simply like a disease of the mind. That's more of a, there are extenuating circumstances that are making your life stressful and that is having a physical effect. And there are physical ailments that people are born with and that it's like, what disease of what mind? Like at the time in which they were formed, they didn't have a mind. Like at least it wasn't fully developed. So that whole idea lacks some serious scientific basis. And it's instead like explained by these kind of quantum theories or the pseudoscience. It's really unfortunate that so many people buy into it. And it's one of the reasons why I'm glad that I have experience in science because it helps ground me with these ideas that are just utterly nonsense. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> I completely agree. Um, one thing I saw differentiating um, neo-paganism from the New Age, and I think that there are parallels between the two, is that the New Age has this extensive focus on the self and self-healing, whereas neo-paganism has more of a focus on community, as you mentioned, Phil. So I think, yeah, we can kind of draw parallels between the two, but they are slightly distinct from one another. I also think there's a difference, too, between them as in where the New Age considers like the self the god, right? But most pagans consider there to be gods outside of themselves that are assisting in whatever way, whether it be in workings or just like a spiritual assistance um, in terms of like helping yourself grow as an individual. That's also a key difference, this change shift in idea that there are, there are literal gods that are assisting and like you are your own god in many ways i think it would be quite awful to be your own god personally like i don't want to be in charge of everything no thank you um i take some solace in the fact that there might be a divine being out there that is like making things run so one of the big issues i think with new age spirituality is that and we've spoken about this with the history this idea of cultural appropriation within new age thought the issue that i've seen here and that we spoke about is that things are taken from so many traditions so many traditions but nobody pays any respect to the original ritual and in my opinion that is the difference between appropriation and appreciation so yoga and the western version of chakras that is so prevalent in the new age circles have been so far removed from their original meanings that they aren't even the same thing. I've talked to fellow practitioners who are a part of like Eastern, you know, religions and philosophies. And we've talked about the differences between like modern yoga, like in the West, and also this idea of chakras in the West. And the way that we utilize them here, at least in America, it is so, it is so far removed. In fact, one of our good friends, I was talking about chakras, and he mentioned that trying to open this idea of opening your third eye, right? Like this is a common thing that we see in new age spirituality. If you were to go over to the East and like speak about that, like you were just doing a meditation to open your third eye, like that's a very dangerous practice. And it's not something that should be engaged in without the guidance of a mentor. It, and if you do so, you could potentially lead to like irreversible damage. So even just the idea of like the danger behind these practices is very watered down in the West. West and compared to the East. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the original kind of meanings and intents behind these practices are so lost and they're watered down to an extent where they don't even resemble the origins from where they came. Also, given the given the history of the New Age and Blatfoski's idea of a better race, it's kind of unsurprising to me that this religious movement thinks it's 
acceptable to just like steal <laughs> practices from indigenous or Eastern religions and adapt it to fit their narrative. I really find it very disheartening um, in many ways. And I think as a community, just in general, we should engage more intensely on like reading up on the original practices. Not only will this help with, with the cultural appropriation aspect, but it also provides a solid historic basis for certain practices rather than basing it off a book that was channeled from some alleged like divine being. Not only will you gain, I think, more cultural appreciation and also just like pay those cultures the respect they deserve, it's more legitimate in my opinion as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Like really, really agree. Um, I think there are kind of twofold issues here because one is that the popularization of new age ideas means that sometimes we have devaluing of Eastern practices because the original meaning becomes misunderstood. So say somebody mentions chakras, and if the popular understanding of chakras is that new age understanding where there isn't really a, a real spiritual grounding for it, people start to think of them as nonsense, where actually there is a kind of a solid tradition associated with them. I think the other thing, you mentioned they're very, very watered down. Frequently, the core ideas, so they're taken like energy being chai, transcendental meditation, the core ideas are taken and then they plug the gaps in the um, lack of theory with pseudoscience. And that is a major bugbear for me. So it's very much like, oh, this works because quantum. Um, I think Fel mentioned Deepak Chopra previously, and he often uses some kind of quantum explanation to explain why meditation can affect your health. But scientifically, if we look at these more deeply, these are not well grounded. They, they're just using scientific buzzwords, but they don't really explain it in a meaningful way. So there's nothing wrong with core, the core philosophies where they originally come from. There's nothing wrong with traditions evolving, but the theory and the grounding is very, very much lacking. And I think that's the main issue I have. Yeah, I, I think we intend to do an episode on this um, later in the podcast about quantum mysticism, but it's really unfortunate. I think that there is so much pseudoscience within the quantum realm because people who like I was talking to Handy about this earlier, actually, before we started recording this, but within the quantum field, like as scientists, we don't understand anything about the quantum world. Like we have hypotheses and we have some theories based on some experiments that we've done, but we really don't know what we're talking about. And anybody who suggests that they have any kind of understanding of quantum physics or the quantum mechanics is insane because we just, we just don't, we don't know enough about it. Um, and so to utilize something that we don't even know that much about in regards to like a physical reality to then use to prove some kind of spiritual phenomena, it's just really bad form in my opinion. And you also have the people who are doing this being ones that aren't experts in the field. And that's really, it's frustrating as a scientist to see such blatant misinformation being thrown about just to try and prove some spiritual phenomena. Fel, do you have any thoughts on this? God, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> One of my main problems with New Age thought is a new age movements and like i have read a ton of new age books <laughs> is a lot of them take ideas from differing cultures and put them together in a way that doesn't make sense i really liked what you said henny about how like they put these together and then where there's lack of theory they put pseudoscience because oh my god yes <laughs> and it's funny too because they they write these things about like quantum and then they're just like but vaccines will kill you and fluoride and i'm just like but why do we embrace this one aspect but not the other there's a lot of mental hoops that people jump through it becomes like whisper down the alley like i learned that the that 5d that the d 
and 5D doesn't stand for dimensions in terms of quantum physics. It stands for the five degrees or something of consciousness. But the memo has been, I mean, that's it's already a whack idea. But then the memo that 5D doesn't stand for dimension as in quantum physics got lost on people. And so already, even with this own whack idea, it it became something about quantum. And I'm just like, okay, just putting it out there. Just don't use quantum physics to describe anything ever. Just don't. Unless unless you're talking about quantum physics from it just yeah if you don't if you don't know anything about physics don't start talking about quantum physics I, my dad is a phd physicist and i brought up quantum physics and every time he laughs so that should tell you all you need to know kind of going off this discussion of quantum physics let's talk about energy within the new age movement all right here we go astro's about to go on a full ass scientific overview here okay so what is energy scientifically and how do we actually measure it? Let's just point out what energy actually is here. So energy is often defined, and if you've taken any kind of science class, you've probably heard this. It's defined as the capacity to do work. Okay, that doesn't really tell us a whole lot, so let's keep going. What exactly is work and what defines capacity? So this brings me to a point, which is that energy is not a tangible thing. It's not even really a measurable thing. Energy is a property. And it's something that we give a value to. It's a number. Energy is, it's a number. In a closed system, which you could consider our universe to be a closed system, that number can be tracked. You can kind of think of it as like being an accountant, right? So imagine having a million dollars in the bank. <laughs> I wish that were true. <laughs> um, nothing is ever added or removed. It's a closed system. And instead, you have two different accounts. One is called kinetic energy, energy related to motion. And the other is called potential energy, which is energy related to a possible movement. Now, you can keep moving the money between these two accounts. Like, so for instance, imagine you have a ball teetering at the top of a cliff. So that ball has potential energy. And when it falls, that potential energy becomes kinetic energy. And so it moves kind of between these two accounts. But it will always add up to a million. All the energy, despite it being transferred from one account to another, will always add up to a million. Energy in a closed system is not created and it's not destroyed. It's only transferred or transformed. And that's really important to keep in mind here. Now, it's a little more complicated than that. So there are lots of different types of energies that can fit into these larger categories of potential and kinetic energy. You've got chemical energy, nuclear energy, thermal energy, nutritional energy, you know, so on and so forth. And all of this is measurable. Again, it's a number. So that it's, it's this property that we assign numerical values to in relation to something else. The potential energy or the potential chemical energy of a bond is dependent upon its spatial orientation and whether or not there are atoms close to one another that repel, aka think of two, having like two negative charges near one another. Those have more potential energy from the strain, especially if they're bonded together. Um, the strain of these two negative charges being close to one another and being unable to move away, that creates a lot of potential energy. And that kind of, the energy that we're talking about here can be measured by doing experiments in a device that we call a bomb calorimeter. It essentially looks at um, the amount of energy that's released from an, a particular reaction. And that gives us a number as to how much energy is gained upon breaking the bond that is unfavorable or that what kind of like however much energy is needed for a reaction to occur. So the difference between exothermic and endothermic. And just like a random throw in here, which people probably already know, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, 
this is actually why ATP provides energy in your body. The phosphohydride bonds have a lot of potential energy um, because being so close to each other is really, really unfavorable. And so when you break that bond, you release a large amount of energy, and that's what allows your body to essentially run, is this idea of chemical energy. So the key idea is like in science, energy is always measurable, right? It's always uh, in the material realm and always pertains to something that we can measure and quantify. Right. It's as a opposed to energy types. is a number. It's not some kind of like a mystical force that you're working with. Like it is literally something that you can measure. Um, and if you can't measure it, it doesn't meet the definition of energy because it's the capacity to do work. Work equaling a measurable force, capacity also being something that you measure. If you don't have a force acting upon something, then you're not even looking at energy. It's a number. <laughs> the thing with new age, they often throw around this word of energy, right? Like, yeah. So new age energy isn't the same as physical energy as we define it scientifically. Some new age practitioners claim that people have this metaphysical wall around us made up of our energy that they can feel and manipulate. And I hear this most amongst, you know, new age healers or wiki practitioners. But when this was actually, this idea was put under scientific investigation, it didn't hold up at all. Um, so there was a study done in 1988 that tested the ability of 21 individuals with varying years of therapeutic touch experience who claimed that they could feel humans' energetic shield. Now, the practitioners were asked to state whether the investigator's hand hovered above their right hand or their left hand. Theoretically, if therapeutic touch and this idea of a metaphysical energy shield is valid, practitioners would have been able to locate the investigator's hand 100% of the time. But out of the 280 trials, the practitioners identified the correct hand in only 123. That's 44% of the time. And interestingly, that is the amount that you would expect from random chance. So random chance would suggest that theoretically, they should be able to pick out the um, investigator's hand 50% of the time. It was actually lower than random chance. I think that says a lot about the validity, the, the validity of this idea. In preparation for this episode, I also went back and revisited a book by Massimo Citro titled The Basic Code of the Universe. And I really, really like this book because it takes a look at spirituality from a very scientific point of view. I think the explanation in here of matter and energy is a good distinction and also scientifically sound. So Isaac Newton pointed out a distinction between matter and mass, saying that the quantity of matter can be accounted for and measured from its volume and its density, right? Basic physics. And from this, it sounds like they're basically the same thing, but they aren't. So matter is known by the weight of each body, which is then proportional to its mass. So essentially what that means is that the mass of something is matter that's been combined to form a body, thus gaining density and volume. The density and volume by which it is then defined. And then this brings up another question, though. If combined matter attains weight and extension in space and essentially has this body of this mass that we can then measure... What happens when the matter doesn't combine? And this matter without form was called, you know, amorphous by Aristotle and labeled as prime matter. And I find that really interesting when I originally read this book and I recently began my investigation into alchemy. And this idea of prime matter was something that I came across in the alchemical tradition. And I think it provides a good kind of explanation for 
a possible explanation, I won't say the explanation, for kind of the, the type of matter and energy we're working with in two dimensions. You have one where we deal with combined matter, that which has mass and is measurable, and then pure matter, this, this prime matter, which exists and can't really be quantified or really experienced. And instead of talking about energy, I kind of wish we would we would maybe shift and talk about it in terms of this prime matter material that can't be quantified or measured because I think it's a more accurate reflection of what's going on versus utilizing this term energy, which is something that we experience in the physical realm and has to be quantified in some way because it really is just a number. There's tons of traditions, right, that have this idea of some kind of like invisible force like I mentioned chai but also like in Hellenism we even have this idea of miasma which is this kind of like spiritual dirt that we have to purify um so I don't think there's anything wrong with the idea of something which can't be quantified it's just I think we need to separate those two terms as you mentioned and not think of it as as physical energy because they're they're not the same thing and I think it leads to kind of pseudoscientific misunderstandings so to put energy in the words of a new age practitioner uh, in a book called creative visualization by Shakti Gawan, uh, a book that was published in 1978. And so like during the early, the early heydays and it it had a, a massive influence on, on the occult. So here is a quote from that. It says, the scientific world is beginning to discover what metaphysical and spiritual teachers have known for centuries. Our physical universe is not really composed of any matter at all. Its basic component is a kind of force or essence, which we call energy. Uh, They appear to have solid and separate on finer and atomic and subatomic levels or smaller and smaller particles within particles, which eventually turn out to just be pure energy. The energy is vibrating at different rates of speed and so has different qualities. Thought is a relatively fine, light form of energy and therefore very quick and easy to change. On the other hand, matter is relatively dense, compact energy and therefore slower to move and change. So here we get we see fun words like vibrations. <laughs> and that energy of a certain quality or vibration tend to attract energy of a similar quality and vibration, which leads to the law of attraction which is another huge thing in the New Age. So that is from 1978, a big member of the New Age community and what they think energy is. These are just buzzwords. These are buzzwords. Like, for example, you could say that a chemical bond is kind of contains vibrations in a kind of abstract way, but that doesn't mean that all matter is formed of energy, that they are distinct concepts, but again, it just seems like they've taken these ideas once again in a very, very superficial manner and misappropriated them to fit the original spiritual concepts. It does such a disservice to these original traditions. It's really upsetting. (laughs) That was physically painful to listen to. Yeah, not a fan. Actually, and I was talking to Hannah this earlier too, but it's it's interesting because I kind of think that we'll we'll touch upon this at a later date. Um, so there's this idea in quantum physics of string theory that was suggested to have a good explanation kind of for for the quantum the quantum world. Now, string theory has lots of problems. I won't get into all of them here. However, the idea of string theory is that you have all these like microstrings that are super tiny, like nanoparticle size, and they're constantly vibrating. And that is kind of what leads to this like energetic basis of the universe. And it's interesting. I was thinking kind of about how maybe this idea of vibrations really became such a big thing. And 
I wonder if maybe a lot of new age practitioners, which actually they do, because I have seen correlations between string theory and the new age, um, base everything off of this idea of these vibrations. So you have all these vibrations, like in accordance to string theory on the quantum level, and then that affects the vibratory properties, quote unquote, of things on the macro level, which I think is utter crap. But anyways, <laughs> so let me then that let, let's have that lead into our next discussion, which is this idea of high and low vibrations. Okay, so first and foremost, scientifically, this is ridiculous. Now, I'm not denying that there are high vibrations and that there are low vibrations because there are. Um, we can measure it. However, to say that something as complex as emotions exists either as a high vibration or a low vibration is pseudoscience and it hasn't been measured because it can't be measured. Emotions are due to many things, including like neurotransmitters and the receptors in your brain. And just like things that we don't even know how they work yet. Again, the brain is such a mystery to us that we don't even fully understand how emotions work. It's why psychology is kind of, it's so difficult because it's like trying to understand human emotion and like scientifically, like neurologically, we don't have the answers. So first of all, to try and make it so black and white, is insane. Do you want to take a step back and like explain what a vibration is? Like what, what is vibrating when scientifically we're talking about vibrations? So we're usually talking about like electromagnetic waves, right? Like sound and light. Mm -hmm. And maybe we're talking about subatomic particles at, at, at some ex to some extent, but we're talking about physical measurable things, right? And therefore it follows that if there's something physical measuring, then we should be able to physically vibrating, we should be able to measure it. And it shouldn't be something that is kind of more ethereal or ephemeral as as emotion again yeah vibration is it's again it's a property right so it's something that we can measure and it's a property that these molecules have because of movement and so yeah anything that is physically vibrating should be measurable it should be quantifiable um and if it's not in like so a lot of the things that people kind of put this idea of high and low vibrations into like emotions they, it doesn't make sense that those would have vibratory properties because they aren't like physical things. So this idea kind of has, an, has another issue and I touched upon it briefly, but I wanna kind of cover it a little more pointedly. So David Hawkins, who is a spiritual writer that created, created this thing called the map of consciousness. And it surrounded this idea of high and low vibrational division that suggests that things like shame, guilt, apathy, grief, fear, and anger, all of these are negative emotions and they have a low vibration. So then to live one's life at the highest vibration, we have to move from that and to better things like peace and joy and love and acceptance and so on and so forth. But what's unfortunate is that by qualifying these emotions with words like unconscious and unhealthy, we leave open the possibility that there is conscious and healthy, there's a conscious and healthy form of them as well. And so the biggest issue with high and low vibrations is that it's a binary system that leaves absolutely no room for nuance. And that can lead to incredibly toxic thinking. Fear is not always bad. Love is not always good. This, this utter separation between black and white of good and bad is just not, it's not a good system. And we, we see that even now, like this, like black and white thinking, it's never good. It's always a scale to everything. And so the, the kind of just utter disruption and putting them into one category or another, it leads to very toxic thinking, which I think we see in the whole kind of love and light ideal of the new age movement, which I think we'll touch upon a little bit later. I think I think it goes back to this uh, individualism that we've mentioned previously in the new age, where you're thinking um, of yourself and you are responsible for your own reality in a lot of these, these paradigms. So 
it's some some new age thinking even says that you've kind of chosen the life you have on earth which is so so problematic because it kind of dismisses the whole idea of like privilege and poverty and fell i think you mentioned the kind of law of attraction i don't know if you want to talk about that here because i think it's it's relevant um this idea that your personal emotions and your actions are the only thing that influence your life yeah so the law of attraction it is such it's basically for those of you who don't know i think you can kind of guess even based on the name it's this idea that like what you put out you will get so that sounds very vague but it's kind of like the word attraction is like used a lot and it's seen like a rebirth uh unfortunately (laughs) the secret is a book uh from in 2006 it was like massive it's the idea that your thoughts can change a life directly it uh, also talks about energy and how what you put out you can get and it is it was just like a, a huge thing they even made a film out of it i don't know how the heck they made a film out of but it was a huge idea at the time and it's still like a a huge uh concept even in like less the witchy new age circles people talk it, about like attracting common, things like, witchcraft circles yeah i mean this yeah no it's huge in witchcraft circles too yeah it's everywhere and i look he hate it yeah so oh i just i'm looking at the synopsis of the secret and lo and behold what does it say it popularized notions that persons such as madame blavatsky <laughs> that thinking about certain things will make them appear in one's own life it's often this idea that like you will like if you hear the word manifestation that is also the law of attraction like manifest good vibes. There is some basis that you're thinking that what you think you will seek out. Some basis. (laughs) However, that has nothing to do with like energy and the universe. And that has entirely to do with psychology. Like if someone is self-destructive because of grief or depression or or any reason why they might be self-destructive, they're going to seek out things that are destructive because that is just mentally (laughs) what is happening for them and you know people who are feeling really stable or neurotypical and uh, mentally healthy they might be more inclined to see the bright side of something however it doesn't actually like affect the events that are happening the law of attraction and manifestation dictates that like your thinking will bring those things into your life. I think it's important to remember, right, that the world is separate from you as an individual. Now, yes, we say that we have connections to the plants and things, and I think that's true, certainly. But, like, they are separate. Like, circumstances that happen to you in your life are not full consequence of, like, the thoughts that you have or this idea of low and high vibrations. That's not how that works. And so it's important to keep that in mind. Like, the world is not so influenced by how you think. And that's the biggest issue that I have with law of attraction. It's like this constant cycle of, like, karma, right? It's like, oh, you put out something bad, something bad's coming back to you. You put out something good, something good's coming back to you. And it's, like, it's not that simple. And, yeah, I think that is a very problematic way of thinking. Also because, like, it leads to a lot of guilt, right? Like, if you are depressed or anxious and like those things are hard to deal with and like get you know quote unquote get out of even though I don't think anybody actually fully gets out of them it's like a thing that we just learned to deal with but like those are also not inherently bad things and just because you do have a you know 
bout of depression or you get super anxious, that doesn't mean that you're going to attract all of these horrible things to you, especially if you're working on it. Like that's a good thing. And those are the kind of things that need to be discussed with a therapist and taken outside of spirituality because they aren't entirely spiritual. So just, yeah, it you don't need to feel guilt because you feel like there's this cycle of bad things happening because you're struggling with something. Again, I just think it's a very toxic way to think because it also leads to so much victim blaming and like self-blaming and just self-degradation. Like there's so many issues with that way of thought. Yeah, I think it, it takes this idea of the microcosm and the macrocosm and then it turns it up to like 11 and it adds in these like intense self-involvement and then it tries to justify it with pseudoscience and that's where we get this kind of fake new age thinking like the law of attraction everything you think is going to manifest in your life and as you've mentioned it's incredibly toxic um i also think that it's had a big influence on the kind of love and light ideas and i wondered what you guys thought about that i mean it it all goes back to this idea like of of love as this universal force which is something that is seen in a lot of new religious movements um and like no one ever defines what the no one ever defines what love is and like i want to know what love is like i i (laughs) i really i want them to tell me (laughs) i need you to show me like love is about the chemicals in your brain (laughs) i know and it's like people just like they say love and the universal love and i don't know what the heck they're talking about and that is a common idea in a, in a, in a lot of new religious movements, as I mentioned. Um, and like, that's even seen in like new thought Christianity. Um, and even in some forms of Protestant Christianity in general of like God, God is love. And like, there is evidence, you know, I mean, I'm not a biblical scholar at all. I think there there is evidence to support that belief in historical times. But nowadays it's God smote Job's family because he loved him. So you get into like really weird territory and it's the same thing with like energy where you you ask 10 witches what energy is and you get 10 different responses. And I know because I, I did it. <laughs> I, asked, I asked what energy was and I got a bunch of different responses. And there's the same thing with light, right? Light is energy. Light is a high form of vibrations where it's just like the more you look at these definitions and what people think they are, the more they unravel. It's kind of like how they say that some people like saying god bless you is like actually more snarky and passive aggressive in some ways love and light is like that as well and like if someone is not being love and light by telling them love and light you're like dismissing them and being like oh well you're not on my wavelength yeah it's funny the idea of love and light actually i think is something that you can trace back even to fundamental christianity right it's this idea of like god is love and light like he is he embodies the good um, and we should have aimed to follow that over the bad, which is then, you know, embodied by this idea of the devil is this devil archetype. I think love and light is toxic. And I also think it's ignorant. And I'm going hardcore today. Man. So the thing is that not only does it promote this idea of only like pause, the only good thing is our positive things, because that's not true. We learn from both positive and negative experiences. But also, oftentimes you'll hear people kind of this idea of love and light also equaling not equaling, but being synonymous to also the Wiccan read, which is like, do no harm. In many ways, it's impossible to actually do something fully with quote unquote, love and light intentions, right? I just don't think it's possible. Even something as simple as like a money spell, 
that money has to come from somewhere. Remember, energy is not created or destroyed. You're not just creating something out of thin air here. If we consider the universe to be a closed system, which I think it is. And so when you do a money bowl spell, that money is coming from somebody else, maybe somebody who needs it. And you could argue that if you are living a relatively well-off life, that that money bowl spell isn't of love and light because you're removing that money from somebody who may potentially need it. Same with the job spell. You're potentially removing a job from somebody who may need it. I don't think it's possible to do any kind of spell and have it thoroughly be of love and light. It's just don't think it's possible. And so because of that, like I just, there's so much guilt that comes from that. If you don't meet that criteria of what exactly is love and light, which no one even defines it. So like, what even is that criteria? I don't know. Then like, you just feel guilty and you feel like you're an awful person. And it's like, why are you holding yourself to some impossible standard? That's also being like, tried to, people are trying to explain it with a bunch of pseudoscience, which just makes me want to die inside. So yeah, there's just so many issues between it leading to toxic thought and the fact that it's impossible to live a love and light life entirely. Like it's just not, you can't do it. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you guys. I think that the main thing is just it's so nebulous because, you know, light is a really interesting concept in the occult. You can think of it as referring to divinity in various different ways. But in New Age thought, I don't really think it gets referred to in that context. It's just this nebulous idea of positivity and you will attract what you give out. Um, and so, yeah, I don't really vibe with it for that reason, though, because I think it just is meaningless most of the time. Yeah. So I think for our last thoughts, we're just going to ask one question, which is how did New Age come to be equated with the occult? And what are the differences? We've already touched upon quite a few kind of throughout this episode. But yeah, what does everybody think about that? I would argue that New Age has always been a cult. And there are influences, you know, that influence the New Age, that influence a lot of newer religious movements and sort of the rebirth of, of old religious movements. Like the amount of times I've gone into like Hellenic spaces and people have been like, what crystal represents Apollo? And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, his face. Um, Please no. <laughs> yeah, so like it's very pervasive. And it's it's fascinating. The more I did research for this episode, the more I realized just like how much influence the New Age has had on modern witchcraft. And then sometimes I ha- I have trouble telling the difference where the influence is and like where one thing came from. And like obviously, like sharing and traditions growing is fine, but I personally think it's important to see where these ideas come from and the framework for them so you're not just doing a larp in your head which i think new age thought encourages so i i grew up as a christian fundamentalist and like a fundamentalist cult it was a whole thing and i oscillated towards the end of my time there and actually not even the end of my time there like since i was 13 like at 13 is when i first got introduced to new age and i oscillated pretty rapidly between new age and, and Christian fundamentalism because I just want to like, point out the irony yeah. of using the word oscillation. I know <laughs> I vibrated between the two of them because they, they actually are very similar. Like I think I've heard someone mention it, like the, the new age to fundamentalist pipeline, like it's real. I mean, what's her name? Doreen Virtue, huge, huge name in new age. Now a Christian fundamentalist. And like, if you go to Christian fundamentalist circles, There's essential oil healing. I've seen crystal healing, faith healing, a lot of that, like that's new thought and new age sort of intermixing. So there's actually a a huge back and forth. And that's part of the reason why I'm so critical of new age is because I spent how many years? I spent at least four years. I spent between 13 
and 16 in um, or 13 and 17 in the new age, which like that doesn't it's not that many years, but that's a huge formative part of my life. And like, believe what you want. But like a lot of new age beliefs are dangerous. And I've seen people, I've seen friends become conspiritual and go off into like the deep world of Atlantis. The amount of anti-vaxxers I knew growing up was like insane. And like that came from from both camps. So that's part of the reason why I'm so critical of new age is because I've seen the harm. I've personally experienced the harm that can come from that thinking. And it's interesting to me coming from that world and entering modern witchcraft and like realizing the little bits of influence that sort of bleed over. So if that's a, a brief foray into into my new age story. Um, and I guess to, just so, because I, sometimes I feel like people will be like, oh, you talk about these things, you've never tried them. Well, yeah, I, I did Akashic Record <laughs> meditations. I did astral projection, like new age frequency meditations. I did past life regression. I have read more new age books than I have read witchy books. <laughs> because of just how long I spent in that in that field and like you know I had a lot of time as a teenager and I would like read these books like I did the like psychic exercises that they would have it was wild (laughs) a wild time period it's interesting because I think it's really unfortunate that new age is kind of the first thing that pops up when people begin to look into witchcraft just because of how prevalent it is within because that was one of the reasons why I really didn't get into witchcraft for the longest time was because of all of these ridiculous pseudoscience notions that I saw from new age. And I was just like, if that is what witchcraft is, like I, I cannot in good, good faith go into this and like have it become something that I do practice or even believe in. I was like, I just can't. Um, and so the first couple of years of my practice when I was a folk practitioner, and it was really heavily influenced by some new age ideals. I really struggled. It's why I eventually made the move into more traditional witchcraft and also ceremonial magic was because I got, I was able to remove all of that from kind of my practice um, and really still maintain a like legitimate scientific kind of view of what I do, but then also experience things on a more, I don't want to say legitimate, but seemingly legitimate um, level than, than, you know, new age would, would recommend. And so I've always taken an issue with it. I just thought it was so dangerous. And that's and it made me scared to get into the occult. And I think that's an unfortunate kind of side effect of this, you know, whole woo-woo pseudoscience, you know, part of new age is that it just it scares practitioners away. Or you have people who come into it and they're constantly told about new age and they're never exposed to any other side of the craft. And so that's all they think it is. And so then they pursue all of these things that can be very dangerous. And it's just like, I really wish that was the case. But yeah, Haney, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, I actually agree with Phil that they're very difficult to separate. Like, I think a lot of the time um, we dismiss ideas by saying, oh, that's new age or that's new age. But actually, they're kind of enmeshed a little bit. And we maybe need to recognize that a bit more as a community. There's been a lot of cross-pollination between the two frameworks. So um, new age was kind of tangentially influenced by Gnosticism. It was influenced by Eastern philosophies. We even see like Kabbalah being used in some new age circles. And obviously, Western esotericism um, massively draws upon these ideas. But I think it's just the way in which those ideas are framed, this extreme focus on the self, extreme focus on your own destiny, and they're decoupled from their origins and theory. Instead, you kind of fill those gaps, as we mentioned, with pseudoscience. Um, So the occult has influenced the New Age, but we also see the New Age influencing the occult, I think, more than we'd like to admit. 
So I was reading a book by Cindy Brennan um, on Hecate's modern witchcraft, and I, there were references to chakras, ascended masters, all these kind of things we've mentioned. Um, a lot of people I've seen who really, really enjoyed that book. Also, I've, I've seen them reject New Age principles, maybe not realizing where these ideas come from. Um, other differences I've recognized with specifically New Age thought is that New Age things are often commodified and commercialized. Um, so they're often, they, they borrow from other cultures and then they try to try and sell them. They've been popularized in the mainstream, so like by the Beatles we've mentioned. And they're often very, yes, as we mentioned, superficial on the surface. I wanted to ask if you guys have, men- have noticed New Age influences in occult literature. The the main thing that came to mind right now, and it's a pretty pretty popular book, it has been almost unanimously recommended, if not unanimously recommended by at least everyone that I have talked to, is the book Psychic Witch. The first part of the book, like the, the book has some like really, really great exercises. And I think, you know, it's groundbreaking. It's there. There's not really been a book that has addressed with theory the idea of energy manipulation. And but as I got into the second half of the book, I, I saw talking about Akashic Records, talking about a lot of different paradigms that became blended in a way that just I could not make sense of it I mean I'm sure if I I sat down and like had a conversation uh I would love to have a conversation uh with the author Matt Aron because I I think there there are some really interesting ideas and I wish that they were explored more in the book from a theoretical perspective just because like you know I'm always like why 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 but we see it ego and super ego we see talking about the witch's eye, which to me sounds a little bit too close to the third eye and the way that it's discussed. But there again, we, we see a lot of influence even into like that book came out in 2020, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Even into the 2020s, we see influences from the New Age. I think many introductory texts to yeah. craft are very, very heavily influenced by New Age. The amount of books I've seen that have had like chakras, I'm like, what? (laughs) The fact that there are books coming out on chakras that like are of the Western chakras, not even of East, like I intentionally avoid (laughs) such books because I know it's so based in the New Age and Western chakras. And I'm like, I don't want to learn about that chakra. I want to go back and like look at the Eastern like original tradition of chakras and understand it from that perspective because that's where it came from. But yeah, a lot of introductory books talk about chakras and like law of attraction and manifestation yeah. and they do it all in a very new age kind of way. And I I kind of hate <laughs> that so many introductory witchcraft books do that because I think it's just like indoctrinating people before they even know the difference. So they don't even know how to tell what is new age and what is actually witchcraft or from a legitimate folk tradition. And it's very frustrating to like me as a not that I'm an old practitioner but like an older practitioner I don't know I don't know yeah I've seen it a lot which is why I read academic old texts <laughs> I see it much less frequently in traditional witchcraft books so thing anything right. by like Jim and Gary I really don't see much new age influence all the alchemy books that I read very little new age influence like practically none and that's again it's why I moved to ceremonial magic is because there's there's little to then I wouldn't say there's no but there is some um, but there's not nearly as much new age practice and it's usually pretty easy to spot when it does pop up I also want to add like there's nothing wrong with incorporating new ideas and if new idea new age ideas work for you then that's absolutely fine but I think it's just about examining the basis of these and 
how superficial are they? What is your understanding of them? Do they incorporate pseudoscience? And can you interrogate that? These are all really important questions to ask yourself, like, how does this work? Why does this work? Right. Where does it come from? Yeah, I think learning how to make something work, half of the battle is knowing why it works, which is why I think a lot of practices can like fall apart when you don't question that. And I think questioning is is good. I honestly think questioning and doubt is one of the most healthy things to have as a practitioner. I see so many people like there's often so much of a fear of imposter syndrome that people are afraid of doubt. But doubt does not necessarily it's like, what are you doubting? It's not about doubting yourself. I think doubting yourself that can get you know, a little bit into imposter syndrome. But I think you need to doubt your results <laughs> or like doubt uh, and question them and interrogate them. You know, Anne Lamott says the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. And I think New Age encourages very much everything is valid. I have had conversations in New Age circles and suddenly we're talking about like, they're like, your grandfather is here and he says this to you and suddenly they're crying and I'm like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) Like this person, what? What is Like suddenly I'm like, wait, how the hell do we get here? Or they'll be like, your spirit guide says this. And then like, I take a moment and I like disentangle myself from that. I'm like, wait a minute. No, that's just group thing happening. (laughs) And so I really think more practitioners need to learn how to doubt and wrestle in a healthy way. Yeah. Critical thinking in regards to your practice is essential to, I think, having a, a, this is going to sound stupid, but like a based (laughs) um, practice. Like you, and this is why I think like I personally approach my practice from a scientific point of view because it, it helps me stay grounded and it, it it forces me to kind of question what I do see and the results that I do get. As Fell said, the theory behind your craft is much more important, in my opinion, than than anything else. Um, and constantly questioning why and how it could work. Now, there are times where you won't have an answer. And, you know, as much as I hate to admit that, um, it is true. And you have to be okay with that, but that doesn't mean that you blindly accept things. And I think that's the other thing with sometimes our community is that as soon as somebody questions another person's practice, they get very defensive. And understandably so. It's a personal practice. Like you are going to be a little bit defensive, but like when somebody comes at me for Minecraft, I'm not going to get defensive right away because I have in thought about why I do what I do, the results that I've gotten, I have possible explanations for almost everything that I've seen um, and theories of how I think magic works. Now, whether those are legitimate or not, I need to, until we can actually investigate that and I can get a hard claim, I'm not going to say by any means my hypotheses or anything near fact. But like, I, I always have an explanation. And so when someone comes at me with their critique, we can certainly agree to disagree based on our experiences and how we think things work. But I do have an explanation how. And I think I wish more practitioners had that. And it wasn't like, it's never a personal attack on you as a practitioner. It's people wanting to understand where you got to what you got to. And if you have an explanation for that, it can lead to lots of really interesting theoretical discussions. Um, and I think that would do our community so much benefit <laughs> if we kind of went down that track instead of, you know, taking things so personally. But anyways, yeah. Okay. Any last minute thoughts? <laughs> that was kind of the last ramble that we didn't expect to have in this episode. I don't think so, but I want to hear Fel's uh, new age voice again because it's hilarious. <laughs> and then just close your eyes and and rock back and forth. <laughs> God. Oh, well, that was a delightful ending to the episode. (laughs) 
Um, thank you so much for sticking with us through this episode. I know it was a lot. This is surprisingly longer than I think we expected it to be, um, but I hope you learned something interesting. If you have thoughts, feel free to leave them down um, below or comment on our Instagram page or when this goes up on YouTube, you can leave a comment there. We do have a YouTube channel now. It's called Test Tubes and Cauldrons. You can find us there. I think the first eight episodes are currently up. Um, and we're hoping to be about a week behind on every single episode just to give us time to edit and upload. But yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Bye.